Hello and welcome to the Safe Food Podcast. I'm Dr. Aileen McGloin, Director of Marketing and Communications at Safe Food. And this is a special edition of the Nutrition Podcast Series, where we're bringing you a recording of a symposium hosted by Safe Food at the 2019 Federation of European Nutrition Societies Conference in Dublin. The symposium asked, what advice does the public believe and outlined challenges for researchers, policymakers, and practitioners. Each one of the four contributors is available to listen to individually. There's also a separate podcast where all speakers are featured in full. This podcast features Dr. Gabriel Scali, epidemiologist, honorary professor at the University of Bristol, and author of the Cervical Screening Report, who addressed the conference on the need for open access to food science research. He also talked about the necessity for ingredients lists to be large enough to read. Thanks very much. I'm I'm very aware that we were supposed to have moved into discussion questions by now, so I'll keep this uh, ultra quick and short, I I think. Uh, So uh, my range of involvement in uh, food and health issues goes back a long way, all through my career from... um, uh, doing epidemiological research in the Intersalt study, uh, run, running the Belfast Centre uh, for the Intersalt study on salt and hypertension a long time ago, all the way through to having to decide where to place the pyres of uh, the cattle and sheep carcasses during the last big foot, foot and mouth outbreak in, in, in these islands in my, in my region of England. Um, I, I wanted to talk about... Uh, the science, and I want to disagree a little bit with, with Robert. I, I, I think the Irish Cancer Society is a fantastic organisation, but I'm afraid, Robert, I disagree with a couple of, uh, of things, and uh, I'll explain why. Uh, in, in, uh, in, this is really interesting. Uh, this is scientific and uh, technical journal articles published per 100,000 people, and a huge variation within Europe in that, just absolutely vast variation. So, one, there's a huge inequality in the production of science uh, uh, across the European countries per 100,000. Even more important, uh, this, this is only a short, this is uh, 2000, 2013, but you can see this is open access content in PubMed. But look at the total content, the blue and the green, although it's titled green, only the open access uh, is coloured green. So there's been a huge growth and continues to be, and if you look at the curve going back another 20 or 30 years, it's an exponential uh, 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 growth going upwards in the publications of science. But look that the proportion is open access. The rest are not open access. Uh, I cannot believe that I'm the only person in this room who uh, has cursed at their uh, computer screen when you want to read a paper, you need to read it now, tonight, when you're doing this, and you can't get past a paywall. And that is, and, and we are predominantly professionals here, so this notion of there being ready access to science is not true. It just is not true. It's become more difficult as universities have reduced their subscriptions to hard copy journals, and, and some even have reduced their uh, access uh, to electronic. Um, Secondly, if you are operating across boundaries, as I like to be, and many people in public health are transdisciplinary, and you happen to be in a university that doesn't happen to have a faculty of something or other, you cannot get uh, uh, journals in that arena. And therefore, your ability to engage on policy issues is really, really, really reduced. Secondly, um, uh, uh, this issue of... uh, 
uh, paywalls, and uh, I love this. This is uh, the business of scholarship. It's about paywalls, about making money, and since, and since journals have changed their, their, their uh, money-making. You know, the reason those are open source is because someone has paid up money uh, for uh, those articles to be published. And there are good examples now of the research bodies, for example, in the UK. You will not get funded by a national research body unless you commit to publishing an open access journal, and you have to build into your budgets payment for that, which is great if you happen to be funded by a, a, a research council. But if you're a young researcher, if you're working in policy issues and transdisciplinary issues that don't fit into the rubric, you are in real difficulty getting access. So um, there are ways around it, of course. Uh, now, I am told that uh, Sci-Hub is a, a very useful thing when you feel frustrated in, in the night. And you, apparently, you can look at WordPress, and they'll tell you which the server is that's operating the present time. You go hunting that, but they're shut down almost as quickly as uh, Sci-Hub open up new servers. But uh, I am told that it's a very useful source. I can't actually confirm or deny that. Uh, 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 one of the uh, other issues about uh, information, do, you know, do we know what we're actually getting anyway? The, uh, this is uh, uh, five months this year. Um, the EU ran a programme seeking out uh, fake food and drink and seized 100 million euros uh, worth as part of this little programme. And you all, met, oh, you, some of you may have heard about the, the horse meat scandal which affected this country particularly. Uh, and do we really know what's in our, in our food? I think the evidence is uh, that, that the, the jury is still out on that and certainly the EU remains extremely concerned about it. Um, I uh, want to talk about uh, uh, ingredients. Actually, uh, just one final uh, thing on ingredients. Uh, I, I'm, very, I, I'm a great fan of Michael Pollan's rules. You know, never eat anything with uh, an ingredient list of more than five items. And if you can't pronounce any of the ingredients in the ingredient list, don't eat it either. And uh, ingredient lists, have you uh, ever tried, particularly on a small item, to read an ingredient list without the aid of a, a microscope? You know, it's really, really extremely difficult. In 2014, the EU introduced new regulations, but uh, the, maximum, uh, the minimum height uh, has to be, I think, 0.9 millimetres of text. See, I can hardly get my fingers... Do, you know, opened the zero point. I can't read ingredient lists, and the average consumer cannot understand ingredient lists, cannot read ingredient lists on a lot of products. Oh, I want to talk about food and vegetable. One of the greatest things uh, uh, that was introduced in England during my time as a regional director of public health, a free piece of uh, fruit and now veg uh, for every school child under the age of seven. In my region, we got given £5 million pounds, uh, to do the purchasing of that, completely failed to convince the nutritionists in the Department of Health that sustainability should be involved in it or that we should do anything uh, at all around that, and we completely failed to do that. The Soil Association took samples of the fruit that was being provided to our school children and uh, took samples of the same fruit from local supermarkets and found that the pesticides uh, residues were higher in the fruit that we were providing to the schools funded by the Department of Health funding that. I was absolutely shocked and horrified by that. That led to me getting involved with the Soil Association. As a result of that, that scandalous outcome, um, the Expert Committee on Pesticides, Residues and Food set up this monitoring report. This is from spring term. Their last monitoring report was in the summer. 
uh, of 2017 because uh, this report in particular and the one following it caused such scandals that they've stopped uh, the, the publication of the data. Now it's been taken over by the Department of Health and I have been unable to find any subsequent data. But this is, uh, this is, this is pairs. If you look at pairs um, and the, the tests, they tested for a very large number of pesticides, something like 300 odd they tested at most. And if you see the number of residues on the left-hand column in brackets, and you can see uh, there were two uh, pairs there, Belgium and Portugal, which had nine separate pesticide residues in them. Now, we don't know much about pesticides. What we do know about pesticides is developed either from, uh, uh, developed either from animal models or from uh, major, human exp uh, major dose human exposure. We know very little about chronic long-term dosage, and we know exceedingly little about the cocktail effects that are increasingly described between uh, long-term, small-dose, uh, multiple pesticide uh, exposures. Uh, this is uh, raisins given to, the, given to children. Uh, they looked at f uh, four samples. There were uh, pesticide residues in all of them. And uh, each of those samples had either six, seven, or eight pesticide residues in, a in one sample of raisins. And that's what's being given to children. Of course, those aren't listed anywhere. Yes, of course, the dosages are well under uh, the level. But I really wonder that if... Uh, uh, if parents taking their children under the age of seven to school were told that you will, your child would be given a pair with nine different pesticide residues on it, would they be content with that? I wouldn't be content, and I don't believe that they should be either, but they're not told, so there is a lack of information. Antibiotic overuse, another huge uh, problem. I've been particularly concerned about it in the UK, and it's a big issue there because of... Uh, the issue of antimicrobial resistance, of course it is, uh, uh, but the huge variation in uh, uh, the amount being used in different countries with, with the US leading very substantially. Many countries have shown it's possible for less antibiotics. Antibiotic use in pigs, poultry, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Netherlands, and Sweden is three to five times lower than in the UK. Again, very little information given to the public about these issues, and it is not being treated seriously the way it absolutely should be. Um, I am uh, an advocate now of organic uh, uh, food. Uh, I don't believe in it being used in treating cancer patients. That's absolute nonsense. Uh, I think uh, if we had a healthy organic diet, I think there's every chance we get a lot less cancer of certain types. But uh, it's absolutely no, nothing to do with uh, curing cancer. Um, and this is the uh, share of the total area in, uh, uh, in agriculture that is organic by country. And as you can see, Austria is way up there with 23% uh, of their land uh, uh, given over to organic farming. And as you can see, uh, Ireland uh, is barely better than Malta. Uh, and Iceland, neither of which have any huge, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, agricultural uh, land, particularly in Iceland's case, 1.7%, uh, and uh, the UK is very close as well. So there's a huge variation. But the progress that some countries have made in terms of shifting to organic agriculture, sustainability, uh, low use of pesticides, low use of antibiotics, low carbon, and uh, uh, seasonality is, is amazing. Uh, this is the uh, total area fully converted under... Uh, and under conversion uh, by country 2017-2012. I just highlighted two places. Uh, Ireland has a huge increase of, uh, you know, 40% in that five years. Uh, as, uh, as I remember, remarked once upon 
a time at a, a, a meeting at the Department of Health discussed this sort of thing. Um, 40 percent, an, an initial 40 cent of bugger all is still bugger all. Uh, so it hasn't really changed. And the UK, as you can see with the arrow at the bottom, has actually experienced a 15.6% decrease in the amount of land, decrease at a time when the UK has a huge problem uh, with the nutrition of its population. So I would suggest um, we should be talking about behaviour change. And I, I heard some of the uh, stuff, uh, papers, uh, eloquent papers given about behaviour change. But they go back to, I don't know if you remember, uh, know of the paper by Crawford about victim blaming. Uh, and that what happens often in public health is that a finger is pointed at people. So we're, we've been very good in public health pointing the finger at smokers and telling them, you should stop smoking. And it took us a long time to get around to pointing the finger at the tobacco companies and saying, you should stop producing cigarettes because they're killing people. We still point the finger, and I worry about us pointing the finger at the public and causing that conflict. And that's the other thing, Robert, I, I disagree with about your Coca-Cola ana analogy with the two. Uh, the goodies, the good side, can never compete with the budgets that the big companies have and the supermarkets have. Never have. There is a need for behaviour change, but it's from governments and civil society organisations. It's change in our, uh, in our agricultural systems and our food production system and our food retail systems so that people get an opportunity to buy fresh seasonal food close to their homes at a price they can all afford. Thank you very much. That was Dr Gabriel Scali speaking at a FEN symposium at the Convention Centre in Dublin. You are listening to a Safe Food Podcast. If you would like any further information on aspects of this podcast or any other part of Safe Food's work, do get in touch with us. Search Safe Food or look us up on social media. You'll know us by our purple tick. You can link in with our Food Poverty Network and All Island Obesity Action Forum or keep up with our latest research reports on LinkedIn. And remember to follow the Safe Food podcasts on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time. Goodbye.